from Luminary and Built It Productions. It's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the man behind Good to Great, Jim Collins. People think I'm a business author. I'm not a business author. It happens to be what data is for looking at questions and gaining insights about great human enterprise. Jim Collins and the answers he finds in the stories of great businesses. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you think about the great business books of the last 100 years... A few obvious ones come to mind. Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits, Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich, Peter Drucker's Effective Executive, and, of course, Jim Collins' Good to Great and Built to Last. It's not an understatement to say that Jim Collins is one of the most influential business writers in modern history, even though he doesn't necessarily consider himself to be a business author. Jim is a researcher, a deep researcher, someone who spends five or six years crunching through data before he even starts to write a book. And through all that research, he's come up with some of the most profound insights around what makes great businesses great and how to keep them great. Lots of terms that are now so common in corporate settings were coined by Jim. The flywheel effect, level five leaders, the Stockdale paradox, the hedgehog concept, and many others. On the show today, you will hear a master class with one of the most important business thinkers of our time. But what's probably even more amazing about Jim is his own background, how he made a career out of making unorthodox choices, and how he faced some serious odds along the way, starting with his childhood. Jim grew up, at least in the early part of his life, in San Francisco. His dad was part of the beatnik scene and wasn't a particularly engaged parent. And pretty soon, Jim's dad was out of the picture. His parents divorced when he was in the sixth grade, and his mom moved Jim and his brother to Boulder, Colorado, where she barely scraped by. In fact, she raised her boys on less than $200 a month. But through those years, kind of through high school, I kept you know, thinking, maybe the, there, there is a father there, right? Hmm. I, I really wanted to have a father. And, and I kept thinking, you know, maybe he's going to take a real interest in me. 
And in 11th grade, I got on a bus and I went down to Albuquerque, New Mexico. And my father was living in an adobe hut with a dirt floor and a wood stove. And I had it in my head uh, that he should have a Thanksgiving. And maybe if I could help him have a Thanksgiving, uh, we could have a connection. And so I, I got some kind of, I don't know, canned turkey or something. I can't remember what it was. But I spent the Thanksgiving break there. And uh, my father was so self-absorbed with the things that he felt such you know, anger about or concerns about. And I don't even know if he even asked me a question about me at all. And when I left, I still remember when I got back on that bus, I thought to myself, you know, there's no father here. And I just had to accept that brutal fact. And I went back and went on with my life. And when my father died, I was 23. He was 48. And I remember when I was in college, my friends would call their parents for advice. Mm. And I remember looking mm. at them and thinking, that's so weird. Why would you call your father for advice? And then I realized, oh, yeah, they have a father. Hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting because early on, I, I describe it as that that – kind of lack of attention and neglect, if you will. I used to think that it was an important part of my drive. I described it as this sort of hot coals in the stomach, sort of hmm. a channeled ferocity and anger hmm. that then I could put to good use, like rocket fuel, if you yeah, will. Yeah. And and uh, as I've gotten older, a lot older, I've, I've actually really realized that that's Fine propulsion fuel, but it can run out. And what really matters is the sheer love of what you do. When you have that, then you have kind of perpetual, <laughs> ultimately self-sustaining rocket fuel. You were, um, you you must have been a very good student in high school, because mm. I mean, you grew up in 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 sort of not the most sort of financially stable home, right? In in Boulder, single mom, and you you would go on to Stanford. Um, yeah, I did. Was was being a good student easy for you? I don't know if it was easy for me so much as I mean, it, I did well. Okay, mm. so I, and I did well enough to get a scholarship to go to Stanford and and to have that really be a major inflection uh, in my life and an escape to my own path. And that was very deliberate that I wanted to do that. It, it just came into my head in eighth grade, and I just decided that I, I was going to go do that. But I think what, what also happened along the way is that's when I began to discover my, my sheer, absolute addiction to curiosity. And, and so part of it was I needed to do well in school and I needed an escape and that would lead me to be able to, to change my life and that sort of thing. But also I think that the early glimmers of just, I found stuff interesting and I loved working on problems and I loved making sense of things. I used to work for the, the city of Boulder Parks Department uh, and right across the street from where I'm standing right now is Boulder Central Park and one of the summers uh, I was responsible with another person for taking care of Central Park and you know, every day go out make sure everything is watered and, and mowed and whatever we did. But at lunchtime, my lunchtime, my favorite thing to do in lunchtime was to retreat to the air-conditioned lunchroom. And what I would do is I would spend my lunch hour uh, doing, like, calculus problems. Hmm. And I did that because I just, I loved, like, 
taking care of the park wasn't intellectually that stimulating. And I love doing the problems. And so I don't know what kind of kid takes the lunch hour in a summer job and goes to the lunchroom and does calculus problems, but I just kind of liked doing that. So for me, I really love figuring things out. And, I, and, and I'm just curious about stuff. My range of interests is probably a little like yours, Guy. It's just sort of unbounded. And every time you sort of hit a new area, it's just you want to learn about it. You're curious about it. You want to understand it. You can get another layer to it. And that whole sense of delight that comes from, huh, hmm. isn't that interesting? Right? You learn that you don't see with your eyes, you see with the back of your brain. Like, huh, isn't that interesting? Or you learn how statistics actually work and you can begin to think about you know, the difference between uh, things that have causes versus things that don't have causes. And you go, oh, that's interesting. And I think that just started then. Hmm. Um, you, when, while you were at Stanford, um, you you met or i guess you you had known joanne who's now your wife mm. you'd known her briefly as a as children um but you really kind of connected with her and the story I, I i i've read um is that you took a run with her mm -hmm. um like a long run and then 4 days after you you asked her to marry you 4 days mm -hmm. after that run yeah yeah and she said yes <laughs> and it's 40 year 41 years later uh, here we are. So I, uh, Joanne and I had had met very briefly. Like uh, we, she went to the rival high school across town, and when she went off to Stanford, we met very briefly, but didn't really connect up at all. And finally, my senior year, uh, she invites me out on a run. And I'd always been kind of catatonic around her because I, I couldn't really say anything. I thought she was so beautiful that I, I just couldn't talk. And so, so this didn't go anywhere for years. And finally, she, uh, she uh, calls me up and we work around to the notion of running. But I had asked her if she was still running. And she said, yes. And I said, well, I've been thinking of upping my mileage. And which was a, a completely true statement because zero plus any number greater than zero would be an increase. <laughs> and so and so, I was hoping she might like to go for a run. And we did. And uh, I show up and I have kind of like these, you know, I didn't look like a runner. She's like, do you need to uh, change into your running clothes? I'm like, nope, I'm good. And she took me out on an eight-mile run full of hills <laughs> right into the Stanford Industrial Park. And we ended up walking five of the eight miles. And that was Sunday. And by Thursday, we were engaged. Uh, we, we got married a few months after that. Joanne was still in college. Uh, I was about six months out of college at that point. And we just both, we both came from difficult upbringings. And I think the essence of it is we recognized somehow in the other person an ability to commit there's a there's a famous modern love column in New York Times many years ago about a series of questions that you can ask somebody that you don't know very well and and mm. it can actually make the two of you fall in love very quickly and i'm curious what what happened in that on that 8 mile walk run mm. what did what did you talk about that created such an intense and rapid bond mm. I don't remember all the specifics of the conversation. What I do remember, and I think both of us experienced this, given that we'd both had difficult upbringings, was this sense that 
we kind of understood each other. And, and also, I mentioned that notion of the ability to commit. I, I, I don't know what the, I've never done a study on, on enduring marriages or anything, but so I have a data point of one. But my, my data point of one, I think the essence of it is, look, life is really hard. And good things are going to happen and bad things are going to happen and you know, life is going to unfold in whatever way it does. And there's this, I think we both had this sense of like, we're just in. Mm. And the ability to kind of say, no matter what, this just comes first and we just simply won't break. And I, I, I think it was very instinctive, very intuitive. And, and, and for me, it was just, I mean, I just thought that Joanne was one of the most beautiful, intelligent, athletically gifted women. I mean, she's a better athlete than me. She's smarter than me. She was Phi Beta Kappa at Stanford. I, I experienced her as stunningly beautiful. And it's just like, if somebody walked up to you and just said... I'm going to give you a billion dollars that you can give away to any charities you want. How long does it take you to say yes? <laughs> you, your first job out, out of Stanford was at McKinsey. Mm-hmm. Um, and there you you sort of um, fell into a, fell into or got, got associated with a project. Um, mm-hmm. There were two partners who were working on a research project. They were studying, you know, some of America's best run companies. And it resulted in a book called In Search of Excellence. And, mm-hmm. and you actually were sort of a, a researcher for that book, worked on that book, right? Yeah. I, I've thought a little bit about you know, when did my interest in what then became the first 30 years of my work, I'm hoping for a 60-year career, and I'm about half, a little over halfway now, but the first 30 years of work or, or 35 years of work, when did, when did the seeds get planted of, of studying what makes great companies tick and doing it in kind of a, uh, a rigorous way? And, and I actually think even though I think the, the real beginning of that work was when I began teaching at Stanford uh, when I was about 30, I think the seeds of that question really began way back there at McKinsey. And, and here's how the story unfolded. So I studied math- mathematical sciences as an undergraduate, and, and back then – uh, they didn't have these things called spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was no VisiCalc, there was no Lotus 1, 2, 3, there was no Excel, right? There, none of that. But I had studied math sciences, so I could model, I could do uh, analysis, and I could write code. And so I went to McKinsey, and I was doing economic modeling. And I would basically, essentially create idiosyncratic spreadsheets so we could run various economic scenarios, if you will. And so I'm programming one weekend and for some kind of a set of scenarios that we needed to run on a, on a case we're working on. And I stumble out and I look down the hallway. And as I look down the hallway, I noticed a stack of kind of orange binders. Now, the, the reason this is significant is because McKinsey work is in blue binders, and my memory of this is there were these orange binders next to the Xerox machine. And I thought, we don't do orange binders. So I walked down. I was kind of curious. And I opened it up. And it said something like the Excellence Project. And, and I was just taken, like, first of all, just the notion of excellence. Excellence mm. is a very different word than success. Yeah. Right? There's just something intrinsically beautiful about the idea of you do, you make something excellent because you can not because it will get you something right that that the essence of it is that excellence is an end in itself it needs no justification yeah and so the word excellence grabbed me and so i opened it up 
And it was the, they were doing research on what became the book In Search of Excellence, you know, America's best run companies and so forth. And I was really taken with it. So I went to some of the people who were working on it. I'm 22 or 23 years old. And Bob Waterman had hired me. He was one of the co-authors. And Tom Peters, uh, who was the other co-author, had his office literally right across from mine. Hmm. And so they were there doing the research on In Search of Excellence. And this was before the book ever came out. And so I said, can I just do some background research on this? And they said, well, we need some background on Boeing uh, and sort of the history of Boeing. And I said, sure, I'll go do that. So I went and started looking into Boeing. And what I discovered is something uh, – guy that you discovered in, in your work and like, you know, how I built this and, and in the questions you ask, which is that you can look at, you know, the history of Boeing is like the story of a business. Okay. Yeah. That's one lens, but that's not what it really is. It is one of the great human dramas. I mean, you have this guy who starts this company named Bill Boeing, and he wants, and he's way back in like 1920s, 1930s, he wants to build aircraft. Uh, he runs out of money. He goes into the furniture business to raise cash so that he can build his airplanes. And then along comes World War II. And boom, you're, you know, you all of a sudden are in this position to make B-17s and yeah. B-29s and all these aircraft. And then at the end of the Second World War, they lose like 90% of the revenues overnight. And the CEO dies of a cerebral hemorrhage. And in steps this chief executive, a guy named Bill Allen, who was the corporate attorney of all things, who stepped in off the board to be CEO and becomes one of the great CEOs of all time. And and he places this extraordinary bet was an evolution. It wasn't it was sort of a shift of maybe we could convert our KC-135 tanker into a commercial aircraft yeah. that has jets. And because it was the early jet age, yeah. and the, boom, you have the 707. Boeing doesn't make a single commercial aircraft at the time. And he turns the company, we will we'll bet the company on the 707, we will bring the world into the jet age. And then they do it again on the 727, mm. and then the 747. And, and, and what so struck me is... Wow, this is an amazing. I mean, I love the Iliad. This is like the Iliad it is of like business. The Iliad. Yeah. yeah. This great heroic human story and the bets and the things they were trying to do and the sheer audacity of it and and the epicness of the story. And I fell in love. And I think the seed went in then because I remember going to dinner with Joanne and her. She was doing a, a, a thesis on economics and her thesis advisor. And I couldn't talk about clients. But he asked, he said, so, so what are you working on at McKinsey? I said, well, I'm working on this one sort of little side thing. And I got so animated hmm. about it. I mean, in the end, I didn't want to just know the stories. I wanted to understand. It was like that kid doing calculus problems. You know, I wanted to understand what is at the deepest level of a great, great human enterprise hmm. that that allows it potentially to endure and renew over time and to play an admired and impactful role in the world. Like, that's what I really wanted to understand. I didn't want to understand how to, like, start a company and make a bunch of people rich. That struck me as small, right? Yeah. I, I wanted to understand the sort of how you build one of these extraordinary, enduring, resilient, lasting things. It's never been really about studying business, right? I, I, people think I'm a business author. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not a business author. It happens to be where data is for looking at questions and gaining insights about great human enterprise, Yeah, about human systems. And it just so happens business gives you one of the most robust sets of data to work with. I, I often describe um, what I do as as in, really more inspired by 
by Joseph Campbell than than anything mm. else because I think that yep. that these are heroes' journeys. You know, yep. it's it is the the narrative arc of a of an entrepreneur is um, you find the same patterns in in in, in with Odysseus or mm-hmm. Gilgamesh or Noah mm. or Harry Potter. It's it, there's a crucible, there's a there's a dragon, there's a mentor. It's remarkable, um, and and that's what I think makes these stories so exciting because they are human dramas. Exactly, they are human dramas, and uh, and they and some of the great great human dramas uh, when you know their story, and then uh, and then there's that extra step that I've always been drawn to, which is that in the end to be able to stand back and say. But I need to somehow be able to organize all the human dramas into a conceptual framework. Like what I want to, in the end, my sort of little internal engine is I've got to get to the bottom of it. What I wanted more than anything was one, maybe two, singular organizing idea Hmm. that would explain as best I could see, one entire set versus the other through all the human drama. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. 
So Jim Collins has made a career out of examining data embedded in the narrative arcs of companies and drawing lessons from them. And his own career trajectory has had a few real surprising twists. And I asked him about one of my favorites. I want to go back to a decision you made early in your life, your professional career. You you were sort of at a point in your life. You went to Stanford Business School, and then you got a job at Hewlett-Packard afterwards. Um, And and by by any kind of um, assessment, you were well on, on the path to you know, becoming a, you know, financially successful tech entrepreneur like, you know, Hewlett mm-hmm. Packard in the early 80s. I mean, today, yep. you, you, you know, who knows what you would have built if you wanted to. But you um, you dropped out of this very promising <laughs> career to manage your wife's training mm-hmm. to do a triathlon, which is kind of nuts. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that decision. Yeah. So one of the phrases that uh, Morton Hansen and I wrote in uh, a much later book called uh, Great by Choice is not all time in life is equal, mm. which is recognizing that uh, that there come times when you really have to go all in on something now because it's not going to be the same three years from now. So Joanne had wanted to do the Western States 100 uh, running race. And one of the luck events that happened was it was a lottery and she didn't get in. And so as a, quote, consolation prize, she decided to do a triathlon. And she uh, she does the triathlon and she discovers that even, she'd run cross-country and track at Stanford. So she's a very good runner. And then she discovered she has this amazing strength on the bike. And she did this triathlon <laughs> and she came out slow in the swim, but ended up crushing people on the bike and then ran a good run. And one day she she's sitting there at the table and she just simply says, very calmly, no bravado. Joanne's not a bravado person at all. Something along the lines of, I think I could win the Ironman. <laughs> and I looked at her and I realized, I thought, you know, I bet you could. <laughs> but then came this very interesting thing, which is Joanne was working at Bain. She had been admitted to Harvard and Stanford Business Schools. She was in her, she was probably 23, 24 years old. Uh, I was on this other track that you described. And uh, we realized that if, you, if you're going to actually make that happen, you got to go all in. She can't say, oh, I'll do that. And then, you know, when I'm 32, I'll try to come back and do this or 30. Yeah. Not all time in life is equal. This was an immensely unequal moment uh, for Joanne's opportunity. And so... She decided to turn down her admissions to Harvard and Stanford, uh, to quit her job. And my role was I, I negotiated her contracts with Nike and with Revo Sunglasses wow. and Bud Light. And, uh, and, and I was the support crew wow. for Joanne's quest to, to win the Ironman, which she won the Ironman World Championship in 1985 and was triathlete of the year and his great run with Nike and, and so forth until you know injuries uh, led to the end of her career a number of years later. It was, it was, it was not hard to, to throw myself into that. So... Um you this is like sort of the the, the late 1980s and yep. you landed a job um i guess a, a sort of an adjunct position at at the Stanford mm-hmm. Graduate School of Business um teaching entrepreneurship but were you kind of trying to figure out what to do with your life after the 
mm. you know, after you kind of were managing Joanne's triathlon career? Yes, uh, there's sort of, I guess, you know, I, uh, three luck events that, that really ended up shaping my life at that point. First is when I was in graduate school, uh, I didn't get into a section of a class hmm. and I ended up in a guy named Bill Lazier's uh, class. Was, he was a professor at Stanford Business School. He, it was his first time he taught. He'd returned after years of being a successful entrepreneur. I got his class because I couldn't get into the other, and he turned out to be the closest thing to a father I ever had. So there was Bill. And that was a luck event that I didn't get into the class I wanted. Uh, it was like, sort of like Joanne not getting into the Western States 100. The second luck event that happened is I'd always been in touch with Bill. had always invested in me and was guiding me and sensed I, I, I was cut out to write and teach and do stuff like that. And so he encouraged me to explore that. And then in 1988, a section of the course that Bill taught, one of the other professors who taught it um, had an unfortunate life event that meant that as the semester was about to begin, quarter was about to begin, couldn't teach the class. Hmm. And all of a sudden, and the image I have is, you know, imagine you're a pitcher way down in the bottom of the minor leagues and you're in Yankee Stadium one day and for whatever reason the bus carrying all the other pitchers doesn't make it to the game mm -hmm. and you just happen to be standing there and somebody says well somebody's got to go out there and pitch and so they look at you and they say you grab your glove <laughs> go out there and throw right <laughs> well and so you get this one chance to pitch in Yankee Stadium and Bill went to the deans on my, uh, and and said I'll take responsibility if he messes up I'll battle for him I'll help him and convince the deans to give me a chance to wow. teach this class. Wow. I mean, he totally put his his reputation on the line for me, totally unproven, but he yeah. somehow believed in me. But then he also kind of gave me this little lecture, which is he said, you know, okay, if you go out and you throw a no-hitter, you're going to get a chance to pitch again. Hmm. So then came – a few years of just, I just, like, my life was consumed with doing the best I could. So I had the luck event to be able to go out on the mound and pitch, but I ended up pitching in the classroom at the Stanford Business School for seven years. And then the third luck event that happened was that uh, Jerry Porras, who had been a professor of mine when I was uh, uh, in, in graduate school, mm -hmm. and he was a massively tenured professor at this point, soon to become a dean, happened to read a little column that I wrote, I think, for the San Jose Mercury News. And I was writing about the idea of companies having a grander sense for themselves than just like the sort of startup culture. Hmm. And Jerry reached out to me, called me up, said we should talk, and we began the research together for what became Built to Last. And the thing about that is what I wanted to understand, what did Walt Disney do in his garage? Yeah. And what did he do as he built the company? What did Bill Hewlett and David Packard do as they built the company? Gordon Moore, Andy Grove, Bob Noyce. Like, what did they do as entrepreneurs that allowed them to not just be entrepreneurs, but to build great companies? And that's when Jerry and I teamed up and ended up creating what became Built to Last. And so multiple luck events multiple versions of not all time in life is equal, all hitting me at about age 30. And that's been the last 30 years, 33 years. Hmm. So, so you and Jerry, um, uh, you looked at companies like, like Disney that had succeeded 
you know, meaning that they'd scale into these large, enduring companies. And you, and you compared them to similar companies that had not had that level of success. And, and your research, of course, resulted in the book Built to Last. And I think one of the most striking insights of that book is it – and really kind of became a foundational notion from the book is that ideas don't actually matter as much as people think they do. It's not mm. – it's not uh, – a great idea that turns into a great company because great companies, as you write, churn out and turn out lots of great ideas. It's it's something, uh, it's something much more more powerful and deeper than that. Well, so I had kind of grown up with the idea, particularly in Silicon Valley. You know that, that the whole idea, the the point is, you need to you need to have a great idea. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well. Actually, it turns out that starting a company with a great idea is statistically a really bad idea. <laughs> and and if you go back to the – one of the things we did was we went back to the founding roots of these great companies. And it turns out that the comparison companies – because remember, in every case, we went back and found another company that was founded at the same time with in the same era, in the same industry, with the same chances, with the same – right, but didn't end up as the visionary company. When we go back, it turns out – that there was a negative correlation between starting with a great and successful idea and being in the end the enduring great visionary mm-hmm. company. And there's a couple reasons for this. The first is the difference between being a time teller and being a clock builder. And that one version of the world is the great time teller. Right, the, the person who, the great visionary who can tell what time it is. They can walk into the town square and say, it's Tuesday, you know, March 13th, 1496 at 12.01 a.m. And everyone's, oh, revere the time teller, right? You know, they know what time it is. Everybody follow me. I have the great idea. But wouldn't that person be even more remarkable if instead, but say, you know, I built this clock. And this clock can tell the time, even if I'm not here. And what, uh, what, what the folks who built the visionary companies did was they made that shift from time-telling to clock-building relatively early so that you could have a clock that could generate many great ideas over time. And that's why it became a visionary company as opposed to a company with a visionary leader or a visionary idea. And, uh, and, and that is a shift. Now, but part of what stimulated that shift was the fact that many of the visionary companies started with failures. HP's first eight products failed. Uh, If you go back to the founding of Sony, they started with a rice cooker. Nobody bought it, right? So they had to kind of keep iterating. And and, uh, 3M started as a failed mine. And, of course, that eventually led to a guy named William McKnight who said – I'm going to build a clock of ideas. I'm yeah. going to build a clock of innovation. And my my vision isn't a product. It's not sandpaper. It's not scotch tape. That's not the vision. The vision is a culture and a system and a company that can generate fabulous ideas and execute on, mm. on them. I am going to create a company with a set of ideas the way you might create a country with a constitution. It, it's clock building, not time telling. And that the sooner an entrepreneur makes that shift, the more they begin to think about how do I architect this enterprise, this human enterprise, to have the capability of ideas uh, so that over time – and here's the last point. Look, you and I have talked about luck. We systematically studied luck uh, in Great by Choice. And mm-hmm. what we found is there's no evidence 
that the big winners were luckier than the comparisons. And, and, and in Built to Last, we found that a lot of the big winners were less lucky early on, right? Some of the comparisons had, did have big successes with their first or second product. And what we found is that it's about the return on luck that you get, not the luck per se, because that is pretty evenly distributed, good luck and bad. But we also learned something else. And you talked about this. One of the things that impresses you is the sheer dogged persistence of the folks you've interviewed. Like, you know, they've been knocked down. They're in the bottom of the hero's journey. Yeah. But they come out. They come out, right? They don't stop. They don't go to the bottom and then give up. But here's the interesting question. What do you persist with? And what our research found is that the really great company builders recognize that the probabilities that any given specific idea is going to work are very low. So if you persist with a specific idea, you are likely to die. Yeah. But if instead you see it as, no, my great idea is a company, not a a product idea, a service idea, a technology. You've made that shift to be able to say, what I will persist with is the company. And then that begins to shift you to, I need a clock of ideas. Yeah. Not just to be a genius with a vision that people will follow. Well, let me ask you about a specific company, because I, yeah. I know you've studied this company, and I, I had the the opportunity to visit um, before the pandemic to visit Procter & Gamble, which is a fascinating company built um, you know, um, in, in Cincinnati uh, right around the time of the Civil War, before the Civil War, selling soap. It wasn't. It wasn't yep. an innovator. Soap yep. wasn't an innovative idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, people had soap. <laughs> people had soap. <laughs> yeah. um, and yet, here today, it's one of the largest consumer packaged goods products on the planet. Is a huge innovator. Has an um, internal innovation hub, and and mm-hmm. it, you know constantly seeking out or um, startup um, brands, uh, early stage founders to bring into the company to develop them, um, and just gets more and more interesting. Why is Procter & Gamble still around today and bigger than ever versus, you know, dozens of other similar companies that were founded at around the same time? So let's pick up on two things with that. So first of all, with the clock building approach, the great innovation in Procter & Gamble was the product management system and, and the way they did distribution, right? It was an organizational innovation. Yeah. And so this notion that the greatest innovations are social innovations – and that if you have the right kind of social innovation, it then drives a whole lot of other innovations. That's a clock-building way of thinking. It's like Disney coming up with the Imagineers as opposed to imagining the next character. And so the folks at Procter & Gamble, if you go back, that brilliance of how they organized around products and how they reorganized around their distribution system, these were tremendous innovations from which – great meeting of consumer uh, demand happened. And they always focused on the kind of product and the evolution of it and the marketing of it, et cetera. The other is this, though. And this, I think, is it's something that uh, it's an idea that came from Built to Last. It's called Preserve the Core, Stimulate Progress. Hmm. And Preserve the Core means preserving a really deep core set of principles, a guiding philosophy, a core set of values and sense of purpose as to why you're there, like we hold these truths to be self-evident. Right. You preserve the core. But the other side of it is you stimulate progress. You stimulate change, improvement, innovation, renewal. And that you always have to be willing to change the practices without changing the core values. Mm-hmm. 
to change your strategies without changing your fundamental reason for being. The values and all of that aren't about words on paper. You come back to them and try and reinvigorate them in new times. Like, what do they mean today? This is the deep idea that came from Built to Last. And what Procter & Gamble did was they had a core set of precepts about the quality of their product, about serving the customer, about the way that they would respect their people and let their initiative out, things like this, right? But there's a core there. That's going to give us guidance, right? Mm -hmm. That's preserved the core. But the other side is what keeps this machine going is we have to stimulate progress. So that's the deep idea. And if you were to stand back and just say, Jim, in a sentence, what did you and Jerry learn and built to last after six years of research and all this great drama across these enduring great companies about what separated, you know, a Walt Disney from the others, Mr. Proctor and Mr. Gamble from the others? It is. They made the shift from time-telling to clock-building. And the kind of clock they built is one that has this deep, deep dynamic of preserve the core and stimulate progress. That's it. it. It's so interesting because when I was researching about your life, it occurred mm-hmm. to me that while you were researching this book, Built to Last, and kind of crystallizing this idea of preserving the core and stimulating progress, you applied it to your own life because you mm-hmm. left your comfortable, safe position at Stanford as a... Mm-hmm. A teacher as a as a as an academic, mm. with very little money in the bank, to um, <laughs> very to, little <laughs> to create yeah. a world that you wanted to build. Mm. Well, you know, it, it's actually very interesting you say that. Each book has informed me, and in with the preserve the course stimulate progress. I remember when I was, I had to make this decision: did I want to be a traditional academic, or did I want to carve my own path? And, and I realized I could give up the idea of being at a university, but still be a professor. So when people say, well, why, you know, are you giving up, you know, your, your dream of research and teaching and ideas uh, that you're leaving Stanford? And I'm like, no, I'm just giving up the university. Stanford was a practice. Being in a traditional academic setting is a practice. It's not a core value. It's not the core purpose. The core purpose is to ask really big questions, translate those into rigorous research, wrestle that research down to go from chaos to concept, wrap those concepts into something that would allow you to teach them and make them powerful for the world, use that to fund the next big question, Mm. right? That's what I wanted to do. I could do that within a university, but I don't have to be at a university. That was just simply a strategy for what I wanted to do with my life. And I could change the strategy without changing my purpose. After that book came out, it became a huge, huge bestseller, um, still is to, to this day. Um, and you you became incredibly sought after to speak, to consult, to to help. And, and, and this would become a pattern in your life up to this very moment. How did you start to think about managing your own time? Oh, my. So... Guy, you and I share something in common, as as I understand it, which is we're both introverts. <laughs> and if you're introverted, uh, you really love your solitude. You can interact well. You and I can have a very socially adept conversation. 
But if you're like me, you'll be really tired after it. Yeah. And uh, because you're engaged, right? You're really engaged. And those of us who are introverts need to retreat and recuperate. And so uh, I, I noticed this about myself, and, and I love to just be in the cave working on, on my research. When I was working on Built to Last with Jerry, we were really deep. And that's how you get to an idea like preserve the core, simulate progress. That's how you get to something like clock building versus time telling. Is you have to be deep, deep into what you're doing. But at that time, my phone never rang. It was so – one of the most wonderful parts of that life was nobody knew who I was. Yeah. So nobody called me and I could just work. And then this thing happened of – which I – you know, I wouldn't trade it. I, I wouldn't say I want my solitude. I hope my book fails, right? <laughs> you wouldn't do that because you want the ideas to, to go out there in the world. You want people to read what you've suffered so hard to create. But, but then all of a sudden, you start to get this deluge of all these things that people want you to do. And first of all, people have a lot of agendas. Well, you should start a consulting firm. You should have a training firm. You should have all these trainers running around telling people what to do. So I'm like, that's not why I did this. I did this so I can do the next question. And, and so I really struggled with how do I manage myself? And I went to people like Bill Azir and Jerry Porras, people I really respected. I said... How does a really outstanding professor organize his or her time? And the answer I got was 50, 30, 20. 50% in new intellectual work, 30% in teaching, 20% in other stuff that has to get done. I said, sounds good. So I bought a triple stopwatch and I literally started shifting all day long. Am I in intellectual creative time? Am I in teaching time? Right? And that became cumbersome. But what I realized is that I have to say no to most things so that I can say yes to the creative work. And I eventually came down to this very simple thing called a thousand creative hours every year. <laughs> and at the end of every single day, I open a spreadsheet and I put in that spreadsheet three things. The first is what happened that day. I was sort of writing about the day. The second is how the day felt from plus two to minus two. Plus two, plus one, zero, minus one, minus two. Plus two is a great day. A minus two is a day you don't want to do very many of those. Zero is just kind of, eh, yeah, sort of in the middle. And, and the reason I do that is because if you're in a minus two phase, which we all get into, uh, you tend to think that's your whole life. But it's beautiful to have years and years of a spreadsheet where you can look back and say, you know, the reality is only 7% of my days are minus two. My life's good. Stop waiting. And, and then you can run correlations. And you can start to say, what's in the days that correlates with the plus twos? And then to begin to change your life to be able to say, I'm going to do more of the plus two and less of the minus two and make that a very systematic, it's like a clock for self-management, if you will. But the third thing I put in, and this is the key variable I track rigorously, how many creative hours did I get that day? <laughs> and, uh, and then it calculates back every day the total number over the last 365 days. And that number has to be above a thousand, always, always, always. And the idea is that every single day, 365 days a year, for at least 50 consecutive years, the number has to be above a thousand without a single miss. <laughs> and I track it. Right now, I think I'm at 1315 because COVID provided a wonderful chance for creative yeah. time. 
I've broken below 1100 a few times, but, but not very often. And it's just, but I've never missed. And that's how I manage it so that I don't end up like, oh, accepting all these wonderful opportunities and you know, all these things I could do or building a firm or then I wouldn't have my next research project. Yeah. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You, you basically ask yourself questions and then decide uh, that you want to answer those questions and that is essentially mm-hmm. the the foundation for the next project that you do because it because you 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 released the book uh built to last in i think 94 and mm-hmm. it would it would be another 6 years before 7 years before you publish yep. the next book good to great um because yep. you you engage in this very intensive research process you hire lots of researchers you spend years Mm-hmm. reading and considering potential examples and looking for patterns and yep. right because you, you're not just you're not just cranking you're not just cranking out a new book every year it's it's this is a i don't even know how to describe it it's it's like a you're writing like a two dissertations before mm-hmm. you you publish the next book well, that's a pretty accurate description, actually. And, you know, people laugh at me because I, when I get infected with one, I become pretty obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. And, and I sort of describe it as I, as I start to live with this real fear that something will happen to me before I get it done. I have really good genes, I think. I've, I think I've got really good health. There's always bad luck that can happen in life. But, you know, even in the research I'm doing right now, I feel this incredible sense of urgency to get up every single day and work my brains out. I describe it as I'm looking out across uh, our town and we have Green Mountain in town, which is 8,000 feet. I live mm. at 5,000. And I view that I have to somehow move Green Mountain across town with a shovel, right? Mm. And so I better get up every morning and start moving that mountain. And and it is, it's just, it's a relentless thing. And the projects are gigantic and you, you can't cut corners. You just got to do the work. But I want to share with you one thing, which is where the questions sometimes come from. They sometimes come from other people. Mm. And it's not so much that I came up with it as I recognized the brilliance of a question. So two examples of that, but one is good to great. Good to great would not exist without my dear friend, Bill Meehan. Good to great begins with a story of Bill looking at me over dinner. He invited me out to dinner in San Francisco. I I shudder to think what if I wouldn't have accepted that it was a salon dinner, this dinner. The good to great probably wouldn't exist. And Bill looked at me, he was a managing director of McKinsey at the time, and he looked at me and said, you know, we all really love Built to Last, so unfortunately it's useless. <laughs> and, I, and I said, uh, um, what do you mean it's useless? And he said, well, if you look at all the visionary companies, that whole clock building, preserve the core, stimulate progress, the things that made them great, the fundamental core, all that – they were in place when they were relatively young and relatively small. They had Walt Disney. They had Mr. Proctor and Mr. Gamble, right? They had Bill Boeing and, and Bill Allen. They had the people who were the shaping architects. What if you wake up partway through life 
as one of these big wandering mediocrities, there's no core to preserve. <laughs> you have no DNA of stimulating progress. You were just a great idea and it ran out. So build to last is extremely interesting for understanding these rare cases, but it's useless because most are just big walking mediocrities and the ball game's over. Hmm. And so I, I, I looked at Bill and recognized that I needed to ask another question, which is, can a good company, a merely good company, become a great company? And if so, how? What are the principles? Had Bill, I flew home on an airplane that night, or the next morning, I guess it was, and I took out a piece of paper and I tried to make a list of companies that midway through life is big average mediocrities somehow then went to become great. And I had a hard time coming up with one example. Hmm. And I went home and I drew a curve on my front porch, which showed an inflection, a flat line that went through an inflection and then became a rising line towards becoming a great company. And I drew another flat line that stayed flat, which would be the comparisons. And I drew a circle around the pivot point And I put a little question mark right on that circle. Hmm. And that then became the next five years of life uh, and then a year to write it. I had to answer that question. How does it happen? And that's how Good to Great happened. That book came out in 2001. And, mm -hmm. and that was around the time when probably one of the greatest companies on planet Earth today was, was making the transition from Good to Great, and that's Apple. Mm-hmm. Right, because Apple was could have been the, the the fate of Apple could have been the fate of Compaq, or mm. uh, or or any of these other PC clones. Right, I mean it was a perfectly good computer company, but became a great company. Yep. Um, did it become a great company? I I know the five uh, levels and principles that 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 you lay out in the book, and we'll talk about them. I read those, and I actually think they really do apply to Apple. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, both Apple and Steve Jobs, uh, I think, are a very interesting uh, arc to understand. I think there's an evolution of Steve Jobs along with the good to great inflection of Apple. And in, in Steve's case, uh, I met Steve in 1988, 89. When he was in, in, in the wilderness. In the Absolutely. It was – I was first teaching my class. I didn't know really what I was doing. And I called him up out of the blue and I said, hey, I'm teaching this class down at Stanford. I want my students to do more than just start a hot, hot startup and cash out. It's about how to build enduring great companies. Would you come down and, and, and do uh, some teaching with me, with my students? And Steve, who in my experience was always very gracious, mm -hmm. agreed. And he came down. And he bounds down into the classroom and we have this marvelous, marvelous conversation about creativity and about life and about computers and where it can go and the power of bicycles for the mind and all of these things. He was 36, I think, at the time and I was 30. And at one point in the conversation, he made a little quip, which is, you know, I got booted out of my last company. Okay, so this is 88, 89. Remember in 1985, he'd been fired from Apple. So – or – lost out in a boardroom battle, but essentially lost his company. So here is this great, you know, kind of temperamental, 
genius entrepreneur who, with his friend, Steve Wozniak, had the great idea for the Apple computer. They started the company around that. They go, then they continued to you know, evolve Apple II, the Lisa, which fails, the Macintosh, which succeeds, and so on and so forth, loses control of his company. And that's when I met him. And what so struck me was his passion. Like, you would never know in that conversation that he was in the wilderness. He was working on Next. But, like, his, his thing, notion of just so driven by what he was doing. Again, he'd lost Apple, but he hadn't lost his purpose. Yeah. Right? So it was preserve the core, stimulate progress. He was just going to keep stimulating progress consistent with that core. He connects up with uh, Ed Catmull, who I think became kind of a sensei to him sure. for, for growing. And he goes through the wilderness years, and then eventually there's this tremendous luck event, which is that Apple uh, needs an operating system in 1997. And in the intervening years from 1985 to 1997, Apple had fallen from heights to question about whether it would even survive. But meanwhile, Steve Jobs had done something marvelous. He'd gone from Steve Jobs 1.0 into Steve Jobs 2.0. And Steve Jobs 1.0 could not have done what Apple needed, but Steve Jobs 2.0 could. You know, one of the things that that you discovered in your research is, is that it's sort of the, the quiet, sort of very methodical, organized, focused leaders that, that tend to be the most successful and effective ones, mm -hmm. not necessarily the charismatic leaders, not the exuberant yeah. leaders. And and Steve Jobs is a bit of an enigma because well he, people kind of project onto him what they want right and and most people would see him as charismatic but but in reality as as you point out he was really this methodical organized type of person like he never he never thought it was about him it was about that's a right. mission that he really believed in and, and and was serving and that's what made him effective. Guy, you're absolutely right. What we found was that the good to great companies had these things we called level five leaders, and the comparison companies had leaders, but they were more level four. It's not about their personality. You look at Catherine Graham of the Washington Post, and you look at Anne Mulcahy of Xerox, both of whom took their companies from good to great. Yeah. Very different personalities. Both of them level five, and Mulcahy very magnetic, Catherine Graham much more reserved and dour. And so it's not about personality, it's about this weird blend of sort of a personal humility and a deep indomitable will. And the humility means you are in service to something that is not about you. And the will is, I will do whatever it takes for what I'm in service to, not for myself. And when you get that, when, when an entrepreneur or a leader makes the step to that and Steve Jobs was humbled losing his company. Hmm. And he grew to 2.0. And he, at some point, I don't know when, knew that his clock was going to run out. But what mattered was, would Apple go on as a great company? That's the step to level five. And here we are still talking about him almost a decade after his death. Mm-hmm. There's some really, aside from the level five executives and leaders, the, the five levels of leadership, um, there's some really key 
concepts that came out of this book that are now mm. part of the sort of the canon in, in, in business and management mm. world, the Stockdale paradox, the hedgehog mm. concept, the flywheel effect. I want to I go into each of these mm. for a moment. I want to start with the Stockdale paradox because yep. um, some people who are old enough to remember, he, he was a vice president, briefly a vice presidential candidate with Ross mm-hmm. Perot. But what most people really didn't know about this guy, if they even heard of James Stockdale, was because people heard about John McCain. He was a U.S. senator. Mm-hmm. Um, James Stockdale was also a prisoner of war in Vietnam, also a mm-hmm. high-ranking officer, um, also um, violently tortured for seven mm-hmm. years. Yep. Um, and like John McCain, survived and made it out and began to reflect on what that meant. Mm-hmm. You had a chance to meet him um, when you were a young professor at Stanford – Without ever intending to turn this into a book idea or a thesis or theory, it kind of emerged later on when you were sort of already deep into working on this book. Hmm. Describe the meeting that you had with James Stockdale in the in the in the nineteen eighties. So he was studying Stoic philosophy across the street at the Hoover Institute while I was teaching my entrepreneurship and small business class, and. Uh, as a result, that led to an opportunity to get to know Admiral Stockdale. And in preparation for my very first meeting, my very first conversation, really, with Admiral Stockdale, I read his book, and his book is In Love and War, which is alternating chapters by himself and his wife about the years in the camp. And as I read the book, I started feeling this creeping sense of just despair, bordering on a sense of depression. And because it just struck me as so unbelievably bleak and horrible. It could pull you out and torture you at any time. They could keep you in leg irons. They could sever your communications, which they overcame with tap codes, but you know, to keep you in a sense of isolation from each other and sense of human connection. But what really made me feel despair was the never-ending aspect of it, the sense that you would never know when this would be over. You would never know if you would ever get out, if you would reunite with your family. And that uncertainty and that endless aspect of it just struck me as incredibly oppressive. And then it dawned on me, oh my goodness, I'm sitting here in this really nice, comfortable Stanford office looking out over the Stanford Oval with the fog coming in over the hills and I'm feeling despair and I'm I'm only reading about it and I know the end of the story. How on earth did he deal with it, living it, not knowing the end of the story? How did he not capitulate to despair? And I remember I, I asked him, we were walking across campus, and I, I remember to this day exactly where we were standing. And I asked him, and he said, oh, I never capitulated to despair because I, I never wavered in my faith, not only that I would get out, but I would turn it into the defining event of my life that in retrospect, I would not trade. <laughs> exactly. And so we didn't say anything for a while. He was very comfortable with silence, and we walked. 
And uh, as we got close to where we were going to have lunch at the faculty club, I said, Admiral Stockdale, who didn't make it out as strong as you? And he said, oh, it's easier, the optimists. <laughs> and I, I said, I'm really confused. He said, oh, the optimists. The optimists, um, let me explain. They're the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come and it would go. Uh, and then we're going to be out by Easter and it would come and it would go and then another Christmas and it would come and it would go. And they suffered from a broken heart. Mm-hmm. And that's when Admiral Stockdale, when I learned the lesson from him, this idea that you must, on the one hand, retain the unwavering faith that you can and you will prevail and combine that with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts Hmm. as they actually are now. We're not out of here by Christmas. And that had a huge impression on me. Never confusing faith in the end result with the discipline to confront the brutal facts. And I parked it away. We're doing the research on good to great, years later. And I kept looking at these leaders who had led their companies through times of of great, great challenge and difficulty. I mean, you think about Catherine Graham leading through the Watergate era, right? And, and, And the other challenges that they faced. And... And how do you lead through that? And I began to watch these leaders, and I began to look at the leaders that were in good to great. And I I just kept thinking about the Admiral Stockdale story. And I finally came back, and I said to my team, and I said, I keep thinking about this story. And I told the team about Admiral Stockdale. And they all said, that's exactly it. That's exactly what we're seeing. And it became one of the ideas in good to great, which is, you know, it's the level five leaders, and they get these marvelous people on the bus. But the first thing they do is they don't set a new vision. They confront the brutal facts. Yeah with this unwavering resolve that they will prevail in the end. Yeah. Um, there's a concept in the book that I think is, and I think about this all the time, the flywheel effect that mm-hmm. essentially there is this flywheel, right? It's turning and building momentum. And, and all of the elements within the organization are kind of joining into that flywheel and building it up and and creating that kind of greater kinetic energy that, that that results in going from good to great. I remember in Good to Great, we were doing uh, these interviews with people who were there at the time that the companies made the inflection. And you try to ask them, so you know, what was the critical moment? What was the pivot point? What was the aha? What was the breakthrough? What was the miracle moment? However, you kind of got to that question. And they would always kind of come back with, I don't understand your question. There wasn't one. And the image I always have is this chicken in an egg, right? You, you're looking at an egg and nothing's happening for a long time. And then the egg cracks open and out jumps a chicken. And all of a sudden, people come writing into from, from magazines and newspapers and, and television stories, remarkable transformation of egg into chicken. You know, visionary leader transforms egg into chicken, right? And, and then, but, but, but what does it look like from the chicken's point of view, yeah. right? From the chicken's point of view, there's a whole lot going on inside that egg before it steps out as a chicken. And right up until that moment, it's just kind of one more step amongst a bunch of steps. That's what we learned in our research. And later I came to call that the flywheel effect. This idea that building a great company, 
It is the process of cumulative momentum. And you start pushing in an intelligent and consistent direction. And after a lot of work, you eventually get one giant slow creaky turn, but you don't stop, right? You keep pushing. And eventually you get two and 10 and 20 and a thousand and a hundred thousand and a million and then a billion turns on that flywheel and it's reinforcing and building all this compound momentum. And if somebody were to walk in and say, so what was the one big push that made it go? Well, there are a lot of big pushes, Hmm. but it's the cumulative effect, right? The whole flywheel effect. And right after Good to Great came out in 2001, I think the day was like September 27, 2001. Hmm. Right. So it's dark days, 2001 for all of us. It's dot-com crash. And I was invited up to meet with the board and a CEO named Jeff Bezos Mm -hmm. and the board of a little company named Amazon and the executive team. One of the things I put a real emphasis on was the flywheel finding from good to great. And I said, don't respond to this as a crisis. Respond as a flywheel. Hmm. What Bezos and his team then did was then they went to work and they said, what is the Amazon flywheel precisely? Mm. And how does the Amazon flywheel turn? And you think of it as a reinforcing loop. You know, we're going to offer lower prices on more things in service to our customers. And if we do that, right, we're going to attract more customers to our site. And if we do that, then that's going to attract more third-party sellers. And if we do that, that's going to ex- expand the store and extend distribution. And if we do that, that's going to raise revenues per fixed cost, which will allow us to offer even lower prices on more things at our site. And around around the flywheel will go. That was, mm. you know, sketch essence of yeah. it. But if you ask the question, what is Amazon? It's a flywheel, right? And that flywheel is still alive today with renewals and extensions. Preserve the core, stimulate progress. You're always adding new things and new yep. pieces of momentum and new extensions, right? And all of that. But here's the key thing. And this is something I would say to all entrepreneurs. Never underestimate how far a great flywheel can go. Yeah. And if there's a proof point, it's Amazon. In 2011, Jim Collins, with his co-author Morton Hansen, released a book called Great by Choice. With a team of researchers, they examined companies that had beat their industry indexes at least 10 times over 15 years. And they found some things these companies had in common. They tended to be more disciplined, to grow more steadily, and they tended to avoid making radical changes in response to changing market conditions. But I do want to ask you something that's been on my mind uh, around the book Great by Choice. Mm. My question is, when it comes to being great by choice, mm. are these traits, are they behaviors, mm. or are they skills, or all of these things? I mean, can can you take somebody who isn't naturally disciplined, disciplined empirical, and, and make them that? Is it a skill that they can develop? That's a wonderful question. And okay, I think that one of the things that good to great was all about was how you took an undisciplined company and made it a disciplined company. Mm -hmm. 
And the reason I love the good to great question, it really gets to the thing that you raised, which is, well, what if you don't have these things? What if you're a really undisciplined, mediocre, poorly led, wandering in the wilderness, not great company? Can you change that? And the answer from good to great was yes. It doesn't happen very often. I'd rather get it right from the ground up. Yeah. But it can be done. And part of what happens is, in answer to your question, while some individuals are naturally going to be more disciplined than others, you can build a culture of discipline. And that is, and in, and in Great by Choice, we had this thing that we came to call the 20-mile march. Mm-hmm. And the idea of the 20-mile march is where you put in place a very clear performance marker that you are going to hit with consecutive consistency. It's not an intention. It's like a heartbeat. And that heartbeat then becomes a heartbeat of the whole organization that is really what creates the culture of discipline. You may be a more or less disciplined person, but you are operating within a culture of discipline. So my answer to you is, you know, different people have different wiring, but you can build a culture. I read that that your favorite book that you've written is actually How the Mighty Fall, uh, which which came out in 2009. And it was very different from your previous two books, which which I think could be described as optimistic books, right? They're about mm-hmm. how great companies operate and what they do. Um, mm-hmm. This was a book that even in its title is, you know, it's about failure, um, but equally instructive. Uh, and, and you look at companies um, – that have failed and compare them with similar companies that have flourished. So I, I think I'm, I'm asking you sort of a, a broad question here, but but why is Target successful but not JCPenney? You know, what what could JCPenney have done to become Target? Like, why did Circuit City fail but not Best Buy? Like, what explains that? Yeah. So think about this. It's much harder to have a framework of failure than it is a framework of ascent and yeah. success. Yes. There's only a certain number of ways that the pool balls can be assembled in a triangle on a, on a pool table, right? That's like building something great. It's statistically hard if you just random to get there. But there's an infinite number of ways it could be disordered on the table. So actually, there's so many ways to think about failure. How do you have an organized framework that's not just chaos? So that's what we wanted to understand. And what we did was we took, we studied companies that had been rising and then one kept rising and the other fell. And we then asked what was different. The essence of what we found is that decline happens like a disease. Hmm. And it's sort of a stage disease. We found five stages of decline and you proceed sequentially from stage one to stage five. And just like a, a stage disease where you can look healthy on the outside but already be in stage three sickness on the inside. We found with companies that fall, it's very similar. You go through the first three of five stages where you and everybody else could convince yourself you're still great, but you're already in stage three decline. And it isn't until stage four that it becomes visible to you and everyone else that you're in serious trouble. And then stage five is the no return stage. Those stages uh, go as follows. Stage one is hubris born of success. 
There's no law that says that if you've been successful, you have to revert to the mean of being unsuccessful. You can be successful for a very, very, very long time. You'll have some better years and worse years, but you can do it for a very long time. It's when that success gets coupled with arrogance. Mm. The hubris born of success then leads to stage two. Now, you would think stage two is, oh, you become complacent. And to be clear, if you become complacent, you'll die. But the dominant pattern is overreaching. It is the undisciplined pursuit of more. Big, unfounded acquisitions for the sake of growth and bravado. Big bets that have no empirical validation behind them. Taking outsized risks on your balance sheet that so long as nothing goes wrong, they just accelerate your growth until something goes wrong, right? The undisciplined of growing and moving into areas that are not preserved the core, right? Stage three is when it starts to catch up with you. The risks you've taken, the things you've neglected, uh, the undisciplined you've had in place begins to create warning signs. There's problems on your balance sheet or there's other risks that are starting to accumulate. Uh, it's hubris that we're great combined with, and here's the key, denial of risk and peril. You know, and think about heading into the 0809 financial crisis, right? You had a lot of hubris born of success leading to undisciplined pursuit of more and things that had real risks within them leading to denial of risk and peril. Oh, there's no way that you would ever have an entire real estate economy go down across the country at the same time. And then finally something catches up with you and you go to stage four. And this is when you are visibly falling and when you respond by grasping for salvation. But you see companies that get in trouble, oh, we're going to do a game-saving acquisition, or we're going to do a big bet on an unproven technology, or we're going to do a flashy new vision statement or whatever. We're going to bring in you know, somebody who's going to save everything just, just because we don't know what else to do. Yeah. And then finally, if you stay in grasping for salvation long enough, you eventually hit stage five. Stage five is capitulation to irrelevance or death. And no one comes back from stage five. So Apple was close to stage five. Hmm. IBM was close to stage five. But they came back from it. And what that shows is so long as you don't go all the way to stage five, you can actually come back. You can recover. You can recover. So I I know, Jim, that you, I mean, you're just an ideas machine and I can't even imagine how you um, how you keep keep disciplined over all the ideas that you have and choose which ones to focus on um, because I know I mean even in the last year you you released a new book um, which is a re-examination of, of your first book mm-hmm. beyond entrepreneurship um, and and you are in the middle of working on a, a huge presumably multi-year project um, and yep. I, I was I was hoping that you might Tell us a little bit about that project. I know that probably the result of that won't be out for many yep. more years, but yep. can you can you tell me about about it a little bit? I am infected <laughs> with a question that I inherited from John Gardner. John was the Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare in the Johnson administration. <laughs> founder of Common Cause, and then was a great wise man, professor emeritus at Stanford, 
I was probably about 70 when I was about 30. And John wrote a great book in 1962 under the simple title Self-Renewal. What John believed was that one of the greatest costs of the world is the failure to self-renew, the failure of societies and countries to self-renew, the failure of institutions and companies and organizations to self-renew, and ultimately the failure of individuals to self-renew over the long course of a life. And I went down the hall, and John, very kindly, I still have all my type notes from this meeting, uh, sat down with me, and we talked through how you might study the question of self-renewal. And I set that aside, but about five years ago, I started pulling out those papers and thinking about that question, <laughs> and I started the project. Uh, I can't. I don't know the answers yet, but I do know one of the fundamental questions, and it comes down to this. Are you going to renew within a single art form for your life? So you have found your thing. You're Beethoven, and you know, you're not going to become a banker. You're going to, you know, you've written three symphonies, but you're not unrenewed because you're writing a fourth symphony because the fourth is really different than the third, and the mm -hmm. fifth is really different than the fourth, and the ninth is totally out there and completely blows the world wide open, right? Uh, and, and what you do is you found your art form, and what I want to do is renew within that art form, right? And, and this is what I do. Walt Disney, we were talking about earlier, his art form was building Disney, right? He, uh, he just kept renewing within that art form. It was never going to be done. Sam Walton at Walmart, same thing. Or are you going to renew by, by changing your art forms? And one of the great questions that any of us has to wrestle with is, am I going to renew with an in-art form? And one of the most unwise things you can do is to abandon your art form because you think that that's what you need to renew. It could be that your art form is your life art form. Um, and I'm starting first with the individual level. And I'm in the middle of a massive multi-year research project using everything I know about how to do you know, my rigorous comparative analysis and arcs and you know, lots of information and data and so forth, many, many walks of life in this, in this study. It's not business alone. That's only a small portion. And asking the question, why? Why do some people remain spectacularly self-renewed mm. over the long arc of a life? And if I get enough years... And I really hope I do. Uh, I want to finish it off with societal renewal. I'll have done a three-layer cake of individual, organizational, societal, all wrapped together in the broad theme of human renewal. And it, it's, I'm, I'm back into that mode again where... I'm looking at the mountain that I have to move across town with a shovel. It's huge. And I just just keep crossing my fingers that I have really good genes and that nothing's going to happen to me because I really, really want to get this done. That's the legendary author and researcher 
Jim Collins. By the way, when Jim isn't moving metaphorical mountains across town, he's climbing literal ones. He's an avid rock climber and has made one-day ascents of the north face of Half Dome and the nose route on the south face of El Capitan in Yosemite Valley. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built It Productions. Music